Welcome to Bioethics On Air, the program that brings you thoughtful, in-depth commentary on ethics at the crossroads of science, medicine, and daily life. I'm Jose Lott, your host. We are a broadcast of the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia. Before introducing our topic and Father Tad, our guest today, I would ask that if you enjoy our podcasts and would like to support them, as well as support the mission and ongoing work of the NCBC, to please go to our website, ncbcenter.org, and click on the red Donate button. We thank you for your generosity. The world of biomedical research, and thus biomedical ethics, is constantly changing. The issues that we have dealt with for decades continue to be the cause for concern, and new issues continually arise that pose ever more profound ethical challenges for Catholics and for people of goodwill. Joining me today to sort through some of these past, present, and maybe even future issues is Father Tad Paholchik. Father Tad, as he is most well known, earned his PhD in neuroscience from Yale University and among many other things, serves as the Director of Education at the National Catholic Bioethics Center. Father Tad Paholchik, welcome back to Bioethics on Air. Thanks, Joe. Glad to be able to join you. Good to be back with you again. I look forward to a interesting, hopefully stimulating show here. I do too. I, I was looking back and I realized it's been almost three years since you've been on the podcast. It was August of 2020. So it's been a little while, but you're, you're not a new guest in our podcast. But as you discuss current and sometimes highly complex bioethical issues on various national forums, and I'm thinking things like EWT and the Drew Mariani show, Catholic Answers, can you let our listeners know a bit about your background and the expertise that you're going to bring to this discussion today? Yes. So my background is rooted in a training in science. So I studied neuroscience, did some molecular biology work, looking at genes that you find in the brain. And paired with that, a little bit later, did some training, some study in bioethics. And it ended up being kind of a, a good match, especially because early in my work as a bioethicist, I was called on quite a bit to deal with the whole emerging embryonic stem cell mm -hmm. arena. And I think we're going to touch on that yes, in, in we will. during the interview. So the scientific piece has turned out to be useful because, as you can surmise, there's a lot of stuff happening just purely on the scientific level. And sometimes it's necessary to go into the original scientific papers and figure out and sometimes see where even some of the popular representations around the issue may not be accurate because others didn't look at the original paper. So anyway, that's kind of the background. You know, I bring the science into the ethical forum and try to speak intelligently really to both of them. Yeah. And it does, that, that background really does serve us well, particularly when we're talking about issues that we're going to be talking about today. All right, so let's let's dig into the issues. And, and you mentioned embryonic stem cell research, so, so let's just start there. So Father Tad, in the, the first decade of the century, embryonic stem cell research received a great deal of media attention, and it was the source of considerable... Uh, public controversy. And I, I can remember uh, especially the controversies and the debates about public funding for it. But over the past 25 years or so, how has embryonic stem cell research advanced science either for the good or for the bad? And has it cured anyone? So to jump into those questions is probably helpful and point out that embryonic stem cells do come 
directly from embryos that have been intentionally destroyed. That's the typical way that you procure these cells. And these embryos at that point are very young, meaning roughly five days of age when you destroy them. And so where do you get embryos like that? Well, you get them from in vitro fertilization clinics, from efforts to make test tube babies, and these are the so-called leftover embryos. So I think once we understand that and, and frame it that way, we immediately see that there are significant ethical concerns that one is basically targeting a fellow member of the human species in order to destroy them for a very, very good goal, perhaps, which would be to advance medical research, to maybe develop some kind of treatment or cure, perhaps to understand development, which is a hugely complex puzzle that biomedical researchers struggle with. And it's like a big black box in a certain way to understand many of the steps of development and embryonic stem cells offer a potential keyhole through which we can open the door and and move in and understand more effectively these areas. So with that overview, I would say the question about what's the current status, how have things advanced, where do we stand at the moment, I would frame it somewhat like this, that there was a period of time early in the 2000s where funding was deliberately limited by the Bush administration, and I would argue limited in a rather sensible way, there was real concern to say, we don't want federal dollars to become an active incentive to destroying embryos in the future. So what we're going to do is kind of draw a line and say only those embryos that are already dead and that stem cells are harvested from, those ones could be used, those cell lines but not going to fund new initiatives that would require the destruction of human embryos. So that's where things were for a little bit until the Obama administration. And at that point, basically all those limitations were wiped away. The door was thrown wide open. Funding was made available for any new cell lines that would be derived. Although I believe it was still the case that you could not use federal funds to directly destroy the embryo. You had to use private funds for that. But once it was destroyed and you had gotten the stem cells, you were good to go with federal monies. So after that, uh, there became very little, I would say, in the way of public controversy. You had mentioned the public controversy, but it it basically died down to nothing. Yeah, it really did. It really did. And I mean, the reason was because all of the fighting was about dollars. It was about money. And so as soon as we stepped past that barrier, nobody paid any attention really to the ethical issues any further. So what happened then is research continued, it expanded. But also around this time, there was another major, major discovery, actually Nobel Prize level discovery, which was the development of induced pluripotent stem cells. So what happened was that if you just take plain old boring skin cells and do some genetic manipulations to them, you can turn them into stem cells, highly flexible cells that will allow you to derive different derivatives. And 
this really was a breakthrough because nobody thought it was possible. It was a Japanese researcher who did it. So that happened. And in parallel, then you had sort of two tracks of research. One used the stem cells directly out of the embryos. The other one used these induced pluripotent stem cells. And this went forward. And research advanced, I would say, a basic understanding of the biology of stem cells, especially embryonic varieties, really did expand. New advances were made there. But you also asked from the point of view of the clinic, were there treatments, were there diseases that were able to be overcome? And that's, of course, typically a very long-term proposal in any new technology. So I often will say to people, you know, that shouldn't be our unique readout for whether something is successful, because typically it takes a decade or more of hard work with a brand new technology to develop uh, a treatment. So at any rate, at the moment, it appears that there is there really are only a, a handful of potential treatments that are connected to embryonic stem cells. And these involve either diabetes or some treatments in the retina. Those are the two that I've heard about. And there are others, of course, that people are attempting to develop. But it, it really is a tricky thing here because what you've got to do is take the embryonic stem cells and in effect, convert them into adult-type stem cells, and then do some differentiation into desired cell types. So when you have diabetes, you have pancreatic islet cells that go bad, and you can generate a fresh stock of these cells, which then could be surgically introduced into your pancreas, and hopefully restore blood glucose regulation. So there's a lot of steps, as you can tell, that have to happen and have to happen without error and have to happen also in a very large number of cells. So you're converting tens of millions of these cells out of the embryonic lineage into these differentiated derivatives. And that process itself, we're not sure that you can do it cleanly. So you may track in still a few of these embryonic type stem cells that have not changed, and that could pose a risk because the embryonic stem cells, they're very energetic. They are capable of generating tumors, specifically tumors that usually are benign, but if you generate any tumor, you want to be careful and you're not certain that there's not some additional risk. These tumors are called teratomas that the embryonic stem cells generate. So what's important here for the researcher is, yeah, I want to start with my batch of embryonic stem cells. I want all of them to be converted into differentiated cell types. And then I want to be able to put those into the body wherever the damaged cells are. So I mentioned diabetes in the retina, you can have some of the cells degenerate, and the idea would be to introduce some fresh cells there in the retina that would help with vision. And this, of course, can theoretically be expanded further to Parkinson's disease, where you have one part of the brain that is damaged. It's called the substantia nigra. And again, if you could introduce fresh neurons or 
at least precursor cells to those neurons that would then sort of grow back into place and maybe reestablish proper communication in the brain, you could hopefully alleviate some of the symptoms. So the bottom line is that the research is still in its early stages when you look at it from the metric of the clinic and actual treatments. But I would say in terms of understanding the basic biology of stem cells, a lot has happened. A lot of progress has been made. And some of it has been directly dependent on those cells that came out of embryos, but some of it has also relied on those induced pluripotent stem cells. And so there isn't really the same ethical baggage with that latter category. You have a population of cells that are derived from skin cells and that did not require any embryos to be destroyed. So that information is not tainted in any fundamental way. So this is interesting that we've got these two tracks of research going in parallel. And a lot of the labs that do work on embryonic stem cells straight out of embryos also Also will maintain right in parallel this other approach. Yeah, really interesting. I'd like to maybe um, go a little further with this and ask questions about both uh, embryonic stem cells and induced pluripotent stem cells. So you just going with the embryonic first. So you mentioned diabetes, you mentioned uh, other uh, issues with the retina uh, and, and maybe some other things in the future. Do you think in looking into your crystal ball, do you think in the future that there will be cures for, say, diabetes using embryonic stem cells. Do you think that's a possibility or what's your take on it? I would say yes. I think, yeah, I do think it's likely. There's been enough money, enough hard work done in this field that I think it's likely in time. The report that I mentioned about the diabetes was published in the New York Times eventually, you know, a summation of it that there was one fellow who had long-term diabetes, and it was apparently cured by an infusion of these derivatives of embryonic stem cells. Now, Joe, you can imagine this raises concerns. because That's, That was my next question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, your average person who's out there who's got diabetes, and they read something like that in the New York Times, they say to themselves, well, I want this cure. I hate my diabetes. I've struggled with it for 20 years. Why can't I get, why is the church saying to me that this kind of research is not good? And do I have to remove myself from this particular avenue of research, et cetera? And those are good questions. And I think it is important to emphasize here for our listeners that the gravity of the violation that occurred is extremely serious. It was an intentional decision to kill another human in order to get desired cells and parts. Now, you can say, oh, well, that happened a few years back, and now these are all derivatives. True enough, but this is not out of reach to make parallels to directly killing adults and saying that you want to kill them for the purpose of getting cells, tissues, or organs, as they're doing in China, apparently, in their jails, in order to make available the organs for sale to foreigners. That's something that's just beyond the pale to any person who takes ethics seriously. And embryonic stem cell research 
likewise should be beyond the pale. It should trigger that same kind of response within us. Uh, But so often it doesn't because we've sort of disengaged from the reality of our own origins. So it's a serious violation that's there. And getting back to the question of what about your average person who wants to avail themselves of a treatment that came into the world this way, I would say I think we should not go there. We really should not. This is such a serious transgression. It's just like, you know, the organs out of the prisoners in China. If that's being offered to you, you should say, well, you told me you killed the prisoner to get these organs. Of course, I'm not going to take that liver, that kidney, or whatever you're offering me. I'm going to decline it because there was a clear and serious violation at the beginning. Yeah, I agree with you. And I'm, I'm not looking forward to the day when there is a treatment for, say, diabetes or something else using embryonic stem cells. And then, you know, the NCBC is going to get inundated with, with phone calls and consult requests on this. It'll, it'll make the COVID-19 vaccines look tame in comparison. I'd like to go back to induced pluripotent stem cells, which you had mentioned. What is the status with them? I remember when they were first, I don't want to say discover, that's not the right word, but when they, you know, when the Nobel Prize was awarded for the research and everything else, it was promised as a, this will hopefully end embryonic stem cell research. But that's kind of gone quiet, at least in, in my mind anyway. Where are we with induced pluripotent stem cell research today? Well, I would say that that research has continued nicely, really, in parallel. It's a technology that has been fine-tuned, and I would say now that making embryonic stem cells is quite a bit easier than it was when it was originally discovered. In other words, at the beginning, you had to do some really hard work, some complex types of manipulations and gene adjustments. And that has all been sort of standardized. You can probably buy kits now online that will allow you to generate your own induced pluripotent stem cells. It's that kind of thing where it's really been schematized and and standardized to a degree that you you can almost do it in your own garage sort of thing. (laughs) I I was going to ask, where do you get those kits? (laughs) Yeah, well, it's amazing how quickly these biotech companies recognize opportunities like this and develop these kits. So when I was a researcher back in, in my days at Yale, I was already at that point very impressed by what you could find as you went through a catalog of one of these companies. I mean, it was just so many things. Now, some of them are fairly expensive, but when you're using federal funds to run your lab, you can typically afford them. Right. Uh, so it is amazing. It's all become very accessible. I know listeners can't see this, but I'm just shaking my head here because it's like, wow, it's, it's, it's kind of nuts. What about um, adult stem cell research? You mentioned that really quickly. Where are we with that and kind of what does the future hold? So adult stem cell research, I would say, continues also in parallel with the embryonic and the induced pluripotent. And I would say clinically... This is an area that has been more able to be developed and exploited for clinical gain to benefit patients. So especially in the arena of blood-based stem cells, you have a lot of opportunities to work on treating blood disorders And stem cell transplants are perhaps the most prominent example of that, 
when you do a, a stem cell transplant from one person to the other, which is really a bone marrow transplant, you are setting up a whole new situation for the patient where they have a fresh supply of these cells. You usually have to destroy their own immune system first. Uh, and of course, there are risks in that period when their own system has been destroyed and they're waiting for the new system to come online. They're vulnerable to catching a cold and dying from it kind of thing. So, uh, But that technology really is used routinely now in the clinic. And there are a number of other types of adult stem cell treatments that are available. And I would say that has been slowly progressing over the years. You'll add another type of disease that becomes amenable to being treated. So that's a very exciting area, and it's nice to see some direct clinical applications flowing out of that in significant life-saving ways. Yeah. And just to, to kind of sum up for, for our listeners, and, and correct me if I'm incorrect on this, but in terms of the ethical issues that we're talking about here, we're talking about the source of stem cells. So from the Catholic perspective, profound ethical concerns with embryonic stem cell research, but really no ethical concerns. Again, from the point of view of the source of the stem cells from induced pluripotent stem cells and adult stem cells. Am I correct? Yes, really the source is the issue, and both of those two latter sources that you mention are not problematic, which gives us this nice argument, well, hey, you've got an alternative. Can we just go after the alternative? So what this reminds us is that we've got to be pretty serious about our ethics in order to make that move, in order to say, well, there's at least three categories here. Let's shut down one of them because it's unethical and move into the other two alternatives. And that's a great move. And if we had scientists who were focused on ethics in a profound way, I think that that would be a natural move for them to make. But I think what happens here is we have a couple of things. We have some scientists who want to play at the edges, and they also may be saying to themselves, well, these ones that come straight out of the embryos, they're sort of the real deal. They're the most powerful ones, we think, and we want to be handling those ones. That's kind of the, some, sometimes people use this phrase, gold standard, to describe those cells. Now, certainly clinically, that's not true. They're not the gold standard clinically. The adult stem cells would be. But when you use that kind of phraseology, it suggests to you that you're dealing with a type of cell that's preferable to others and that somehow there's an imperative, a scientific imperative to go down that pathway and pursue that research. And so scientists don't want to engage the ethical discussion too much. It's like they'll look for ways to circumnavigate it. So that's where we are, I think. And I mean, there are some scientists, some researchers who are very deliberate and would not use human embryonic stem cells. The other piece here, Joe, that's always worth emphasizing for researchers is, look, the church is not saying all embryonic stem cell research is immoral. You can do it in mice, you can do it in cows, you can do it in monkeys, which are very close to us, and you'll get much of the same information as if you did it in humans. And so there's no issue there. Push forward basic science on that level, but just don't go into the realm of the human embryo, which is a fellow human being deserving our respect and protection 
because then you are really going to be crossing a very, very important line. Right. Very well stated. So speaking of scientists, I was wondering if you can tell us about the International Society for Stem Cell Research. Basically, what is it and what does it seek to do? So this is a group that has tasked itself with promoting stem cell research. And they have, I would say, had quite an ascendancy in the sense that now they hold very large international meetings, sometimes in Japan, sometimes in the US, sometimes in Europe. And they also have, I would say, this is my opinion, set themselves up as ethical arbiters over many of the questions surrounding human embryonic stem cell research. And I'm convinced they come down on the wrong side of the fence. And this is regrettable because they have very significant influence. They also seem to be able to message rather well with the press. And they have, I think, given at least tacit approval to the continuation of the project of human embryonic stem cell research. And I think that's a real shame that they have adopted that in a, in a relatively explicit fashion. Yeah. So one example of, of one of the positions that they take, I think, revolves around this thing called the 14-day rule. So I was wondering, can you tell us what is the 14-day rule and how do we evaluate it from the Catholic perspective? So the 14-day rule is a kind of construct and I'm going to use a strong word here, an arbitrary construct that was developed uh, back, I believe, by the Warnock Commission in England. And it was a kind of line in the sand that that commission said, well, if you're going to be doing some experiments on human embryos, you shouldn't keep them growing past 14 days. And part of the reason or Putative rationale was that's around the time when you have the early rudiments of a nervous system. And, you know, that looks to us like, well, that could be something of ethical significance. Now, the error there, of course, Joe, you and I both know, is it's not when you get a nervous system that's important. It's rather the question of when are you the kind of being capable of giving rise to a human nervous system. And that's, of course, at fertilization. You're already constituted as that kind of being. So they make that error of categories by saying you're valuable only because of what you can do or what you can at some point manifest. You know, you're only valuable if you can balance your checkbook kind of thing. Prior to that, if you can't balance it, then we don't care about you. <laughs> pushing it a little bit here, but making just, yeah, Pushing it a little bit, yeah. Yeah. So. The 14-day rule has, I mean, it's a funny thing because when it was first promulgated, I think first put out onto the airwaves in, I think it was the late 70s maybe, or, or 80s, I forget exactly, but nobody was even close to being able to do it for 14 days. I mean, you could culture embryos for a week if you did a good job at it, but you couldn't go much further. So it's only very, very recently 
that researchers have figured out ways to approach 14 days and maybe now go further. And it's fascinating because that rule was always there that if anybody would complain about the fact that you were using human embryos, you'd just say, well, but we have our ethics, we have our 14-day rule. And now that we may actually be able to go beyond 14 days, everybody's clamoring. It's, oh, we don't need this rule anymore. It was just, we need to jettison it and move beyond this kind of early construct because there's some wonderful scientific knowledge that might be able to be gained if we go beyond 14 days. So you can see that there wasn't any real ethics at the beginning, and we find ourselves now navigating completely open waters, where as we look at the possibility, for example, of developing artificial uteri as a means of going beyond the 14 days, then I think the rule will just sort of recede into the background. It's never been the sort of thing that's gone into any legislation in the U.S. that I'm aware of. So it's just sort of a gentleman's agreement, and now we're going to change all that. Right. So the 14-day rule is, is more kind of, as you said, it's a gentleman's agreement that we're not going to pursue research on embryos after 14 days. But as you said, they're, they're planning to, or, or the efforts are there to, to extend this because the technology is there to maintain these embryos past 14 days, correct? Correct. That's correct. Yeah. And really, there are already people who are very clearly saying we need to eliminate the 14-day rule. The 14-day rule. Ay, ay, ay. Yeah, oh, it's God. a funny thing. As these human embryos develop further, all of us sort of have a mental image of them starting to look more and more like us. They start to have what looks like appendages and hands and maybe a face a little further along. And then we resonate more directly with it and we sort of get, well, the further along it is, the more evil it seems. And I know that's sort of our intuition, but I think it's important for us to say, well, that's not true, actually. The fundamental violation is at any point after fertilization. And the younger we are, the more vulnerable we are, precisely because we don't really look like an adult at those earliest stages and we don't have a lot of familiarity with embryos at that stage. And so they're just more likely to be turned into fodder for experimentation. And that's the real tragedy that we can't recognize our own humble origins here. Yeah. Well, hey. All right. So Father Tad, tell us, changing topics here. I was wondering if you could tell us about the Human Fetal Tissue Research Ethics Advisory Board, of which you were a member. So Basically, when and why was this group formed? What did it accomplish? And what happened to it? So this was an ethics advisory board that was put together under the Trump administration. And the purpose of it was to carry out a review of any research that was going to receive federal money that relied on fetal tissue. And fetal tissue would typically be derived by going to an abortion clinic and harvesting materials after the abortion had been complete. So we were tasked with reviewing, I believe we reviewed altogether 14 proposals from the National Institutes of Health and I think a couple of other federal agencies. And we were 
to either give a thumbs up or a thumbs down in terms of whether there were serious ethical concerns around some of the processes and procedures involved in getting the fetal cells and whether proper informed consent had or could have been obtained and some other procedural concerns, but also just to ask what other alternatives are available to a researcher like this who's proposing to do this and shouldn't those alternatives be encouraged and funding withheld? So I think at the end, the review board declined 13 of the 14, and it was remarkable. And I think it was really a rare moment in the whole history of research in the United States. There's never been anything like this that I'm aware of in any other setting. And I always say, look, if you're concerned about the ethics, which all of us need to be, the first place you have to put that into action is in funding questions. If you don't go to the funding issue, the ethics immediately just vanishes right in front of you because people look at the money trail first. And if you're paying for certain things that are immoral, that's automatically taken as a kind of going ahead. So this review board, I think, did an outstanding job of taking the ethics really seriously. Now, you asked what happened ultimately to the review board. Well, we had a presidential election. We had a Catholic, Joe Biden, who was elected, who immediately moved to eliminate the work of the review board. It was basically shut down. And the funding questions were returned to the NIH and other entities to basically proceed autonomously without outside review. An outside review really makes a lot of sense. Otherwise, what do you have? You have foxes guarding the hen house and people controlling the flow of money and just dispersing it to whoever they want without sufficient outside review that makes the ethics have some teeth. So I think now we're back in that situation, which really represents how it often has been when the federal government has done these things. You know, a lot of times when scientists talk about doing ethical review, it's the kind of thing where they say, well, yeah, there needs to be more public discussion about some of these ethical issues. But they will not tend to go in the direction of ever acknowledging, for example, that the embryo deserves unconditional respect. A statement like that, well, no, we need to have you know public discourse and discussion, and it's left vague, and I think intentionally vague, so that the research can continue, but you can have a veneer of ethics made available to the public for its consumption, and the scientist can provide a kind of salve or palliation to their own conscience in light of the fact that they said, well, there needs to be adequate ethical discussion by the public because there's a new emerging technology here. That's the kind of language that's very, very popular in settings like ISCR, ISSCR, you know, the International Society for Stem Cell Research that we alluded to earlier, and other professional organizations. Yeah. All right. So during the COVID-19 pandemic, we heard a lot about abortion-derived cell lines 
and they're really their ubiquitous use in research and including the development of the COVID-19 vaccines. What efforts are underway today, if any, to transition away from these cell lines? And if there are those efforts underway, transition to what? So looking back at the COVID-19 vaccines, there were several cell lines that were potentially involved, but I would say the most important one, the one that most people have heard about, was called HEK293. And this was involved, you know, in various levels of either testing or development of these vaccines. And this cell line originally came from an embryonic kidney after an abortion. I think it was in the 70s. The problem here is it's been just used everywhere. It's sort of a workhorse, a standard workhorse. And people use it and don't even realize that it came from an abortion in many cases. So your question is, has there been a kind of heightened awareness of, let's say, HEK293 cell utilization in research because of COVID? And I would, I would be honest with you, I would say yes. I think COVID, this was a bit of a silver lining that a lot of people suddenly tuned in to a message that they hadn't really been tuning into previously, even though the church had been speaking about these things since, you know, 2000, 2005, especially. Suddenly in COVID, it really hit the mainstream. But has that awareness translated into alternatives? Short answer, I would say not really. Not that I've seen in a significant way. Now, why not? Well, part of the reason is that it's just darn hard work to come up with a new workhorse, a new cell line that could be used for basic research. When you have HEK293 cells and you have thousands of papers that have been published using this, whether it's to develop and study viruses or to do genetic manipulations of human cells or whatever it is, it has become the standard, and nobody really wants to invest in the whole effort of ground up developing an alternative. So I think there are one or two examples that I've heard of people trying to do this, but in my opinion, the likelihood that that's going to go mainstream and replace the widespread utilization of HEK293 or of a few of the other abortion-derived cell lines, I doubt it. I personally have great doubt that that will occur. It's too much work, and there's still not enough of a public clamoring to make this happen. Even though there's wider awareness from COVID, there's not like people you know, going out and holding signs in front of research facilities and saying, stop using HEK293 or any of these other cell lines. And also, as you're aware, the Vatican has pointed out that, for example, if a vaccine is derived uh, or tested using these cell lines, it is allowable to receive the vaccine, but with protest uh, to, you know, try to contribute to changing the research culture here. And so this is something I think we need to continue to help people to understand and to continue to activate them around this issue. 
because if we have another pandemic that comes through, which you know is likely we will at some point, we don't want to immediately fall back on these abortion-derived cell lines as the workhorses for developing a new vaccine. We need to make sure it goes in a new direction. Now, this was one of the things under Trump. And going back to our discussion of the Ethics Advisory Board, we were never asked, regrettably, by the Trump administration to review the warp speed initiative that he undertook to develop the vaccines quickly. That initiative was remarkably successful. You know, a lot of money went into the development of the mRNA vaccines in particular, but we were never brought in to do the evaluation. And that's a shame because if if they'd been on their toes in the Trump administration and said, you guys review this, then there could have been some configuring of the research path, which would have allowed for non-problematic vaccines to have been developed. And that would have been a wonderful, wonderful blessing. So we kind of got close to that. The work of that ethics advisory board was excellent insofar as it dealt with what it dealt with, but it should have been expanded a little further to include this other direction of vaccine development as well. Yeah. I'd just like to ask a follow-up question on, on what you just said about the COVID-19 vaccines and the, the lack of input from the ethics advisory board. Do you think, and again, this is completely hypothetical because we don't know, but do you think if the advisory board had been involved that would have slowed down the production of a COVID-19 vaccine? And maybe that's one of the reasons why the Trump administration didn't ask for input from the advisory board. I do think that's a possibility. And I think this shows, though, the problem with doing anything driven by fear. We had huge levels of fear early in COVID, such that it was like, no matter what it takes, we want some treatment here. We're not going to talk about anything except addressing our fears. And it's like, that's not how you do good science. That's not how you do ethical science. So yes, I think realistically speaking, that's where it was. That's where the rubber met the road. But if there had been a little bit more of good messaging and willingness to engage the ethics, I'm convinced that the ethics advisory board could have made really good contributions. And I'm actually convinced that the delays would have been minimal. They would have been minimal. We would have still gotten a vaccine and we would have gotten a vaccine that would be without issues of tainting in any level, meaning neither in development nor in testing. Interesting. All right. So thus far in the interview, we've kind of looked back, so to speak. And and for these next two topics. We kind of want to look today and maybe look towards the future. So Father Ted, the first of the the kind of the the last two issues we'll talk about is three parent embryos. So I was wondering if you could tell us what are three parent embryos? What's what's the rationale for creating them, so to speak? And what are the ethical issues involved? The issue here is connected to a particular type of disease known as a mitochondrial disease. So mitochondria, they're like these little batteries in your cells. They deal with metabolism, making energy. The interesting thing about them, these little, they're they're cigar-shaped little organelles inside your, your cells. They have their own tiny, tiny, tiny little pieces of DNA. 
They're little circles of DNA. And it turns out that if you have some errors in the genetic code of those little circles, it can play out pretty badly. And you can have children who will be born with mitochondrial defects and it'll affect their brain, it'll affect their eyesight, it'll affect their muscles, it'll affect multiple systems depending which of those mitochondrial genes have gone bad. So the three-parent embryo is a proposed approach. Now notice, I use the word approach, not therapy. It is not a therapy. It is an approach to creating an embryo that is likely to be unaffected by mitochondrial defects or minimally affected. And the way you do this is you kind of cobble together pieces of other embryos. And it involves a nuclear transfer step where you take you know, a nucleus out of one embryo and put it into another embryo that has had its nucleus removed, but it has good mitochondria, and create that new embryo. You can also do this on a different level, not using embryos, but using women's eggs. But in either case, you are doing a kind of cobbling together. It's not a real therapy. In other words, you don't have an embryo in front of you that has a disease, and you're saying, let's cure this particular embryo. You're only taking parts, and it's a kind of Frankensteinian proposal to put together these parts and create something that has been sort of cleaned up from the defect. So this has been done in Great Britain. There was a baby, actually, that was born this way, three-parent embryos. I think the first one was in Jordan, maybe in 2017. And now it has been allowed in Great Britain, and there's pressure in the U.S. to encourage this to go forward. But notice something that is, as you're cobbling these embryos together to get around the mitochondrial defect, you're changing the genetic patrimony of that embryo. Yes, it's a small change in a sense by putting in fresh mitochondria, but you're definitely changing it. And then when that three-parent embryo grows up and has kids of its own, of his own or her own, there. Well, especially if it's uh, if it's a woman, then those mitochondria will be transmitted to her children because it turns out mitochondria are passed through the maternal lineage, so that'll be passed on. And you've basically done now a heritable genetic change, and that's going to be passed on. So we have to understand. In these kinds of efforts of tinkering and cobbling together things, putatively being done to satisfy parental desires, we're actually stepping into the whole arena of changing the whole genetic patrimony of our own race, slowly, mildly on that particular case, but definitely changing it by an intentional decision to do the three-parent embryo construction. Wow. Oy, oy, oy. And in doing this, kind of going back to what we were talking about, embryonic stem cell research in the process of cobbling together. And I like, I, I like how you use the term kind of Frankensteining embryos together. There are, embryos are, are, are dying in the process, correct? Yes, that's correct. You are eliminating a particular embryo in at least one. 
depending on how you do this, but often several as you are bringing together these different components. But it definitely is destroying existing embryos in order to start the whole process. Yeah. New and looking forward issue um, concerns what have been turned termed synthetic embryos. So Father Tad, can you tell us what are synthetic embryos or embryo models and what's the rationale for creating them? Okay, so synthetic embryos. All right, so here's the interesting situation. This dovetails very nicely with what you and I just spoke about in terms of embryonic stem cells. What is an embryonic stem cell? Well, it's a cell that you can turn into some very neat things, heart muscle, brain tissue, pancreatic islet cells, you know, whatever you want, more or less. That's sort of the idea. Can you turn it into an embryo? Well, for the longest time, the answer was no, definitely not. You cannot do that. It doesn't have that kind of potency. It is pluripotent, not totipotent. Now, that still remains true. Taking an embryonic stem cell itself, you cannot directly, simply turn it into an embryo. Is not able to do that. But again, cobbling together, let's go back to that notion. There are some labs that have first taken embryonic stem cells and made some genetic changes in them, and then pulled together some different supplies of embryonic stem cells, some of which are involved in generating the placenta. And when you mix these cells together, it turns out that they will aggregate, they'll hold together, they'll recognize the different cell types that you've put in there, you know, some placental or uh, derivative origin uh, type cells, and others more regular embryonic, and they will work together, and they will start to follow the developmental trajectory of a typical embryo. And it appears that when this is done well, there was in particular a researcher in Israel recently who his paper, it was actually not formally published, it was a preprint, but his paper really gave a convincing example. There was another group at Cambridge University that also said, oh, we were able to do this and get an embryo or an embryo model, they called it. Uh, but their data was not as convincing. So this Israeli group, though, they, they cultured this embryo model, as it's being called, or embryo structure, or some people are using, get this, Joe, stembryo. It's a stembryo. Isn't that amazing? So, you know, a lot of terms are kind of cropping up here in order to describe these embryo models. But the one that came out of Israel, it looks like it they were able to culture it for close to 14 days. Oh, which here is a we really go. Long time. Yep. 14 day rule again. Here we go. Yep. And this is very significant in the sense that I say to people, well look, if you can do this and the thing is growing and it's going through all the developmental steps, it's producing an inner cell mass. It's then going further, differentiating further. 
if it looks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, it's possible it is a duck. So if this is a genuine embryo, then you're right back. You've walked right into the ethical minefield of exploiting vulnerable human beings. It doesn't matter that you made it a different way. This is just like human cloning. When you do human cloning, you get a bona fide, genuine human embryo. We just haven't implanted any of them that we're aware of into a woman's uterus. So those human clones that have been being made around the world, they're only allowed to grow in laboratories for a couple of weeks, and then they're destroyed typically. But those are, as far as we can tell, they are genuine human beings. And if they were implanted, you would have a clone born. It's just nobody's done it yet. So that's where we are. There's some parallel with the situation of the synthetic embryo, that we've generated these embryos. And to the extent that we're able to culture them further and further, and they go through all the developmental steps and cues are followed and so on and so forth, we're going to have to say, oh, it looks like we probably actually do have a human embryo. And we haven't. And part of the reason they're doing all this is they're wanting to say to themselves, well, if we develop an embryo model, then we don't have to worry about the ethics because it's not a real embryo. It's like, oh, wait a minute, but what if it is a real embryo? Then you're right back where you were. Now, this line, let's just say a little more on this because I think this is there's some subtlety here. Yeah, this is fascinating. It really is. Yeah. I mean, there's some subtlety here that if you are doing this and you're engendering embryo models, on what grounds are you going to be able to say that this is not an embryo because you might have a situation like this where what you have generated is a real embryo a bona fide embryo but it has a defect here or there because you are manipulating all these cells you know you're doing genetic changes you're mixing and matching early on so what you cobbled together may have a defect but it may be a true embryo so it may be much like a miscarriage where miscarriage is a real human baby, but oftentimes those miscarried babies did have some defect, you know, some genetic defect, maybe an extra chromosome, maybe this, maybe that. And so you may have a parallel situation here where you're saying, oh, well, this is actually an embryo model, but in fact, it's a real embryo it's that real has embryo. a defect. And that part of the reason it has that defect is because of all the manipulations that you as a researcher did to it. And so you haven't escaped any of the ethical conundrums or landmines here that await us. So this is a very delicate arena, and I'm convinced scientists, I mean, here more than anywhere else, there is a supreme imperative to do all these experiments in animals first. Don't do this with any human material, because you just don't know what you're getting. Do it all in mice, do it all in monkeys, in whatever other animal you want, that's fine. And when we get a handle on exactly what's going on, are these embryos, to what extent, are they defective embryos, et cetera, et cetera, then we'll have better sense of what we're... But otherwise, we're just traipsing into a minefield, and we ought not go there as researchers. Wow. So again, if I'm hearing you correctly, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, and this is a very much a layman's take on this. So these researchers are cre are creating these so-called embryo models as they as they will call them but nobody really knows if they're actually 
human beings. And we wouldn't know if they were actually human beings unless they were implanted into a woman's uterus and allowed to develop. Is that, is that? That's probably true. I mean, I think if you can grow it in a lab at 14 days, and let's say on day 14, it's not yet in a, in a uterus, but then you can do some, for example, gene transcription profiles and compare it to a regular embryo and say, hey, all the same genes are turned on, everything looks the same, then, I mean, on what kind of grounds are you going to say it's not an embryo? If it's behaving like an embryo, you know, all the genes are properly turned on in the right order, you appear to be in a situation of having, by another means, created a real embryo. Now, the first lab that I mentioned from Cambridge, their work was criticized, and criticized heavily by some other researchers who said, this really isn't behaving very much like an embryo. It's sort of some pockets of cells, but there's clearly a lot of things missing. It's not developing right. And so the Cambridge researchers came back and said, yeah, no, we're not claiming it's a real embryo. We're claiming it's an embryo model. And in that case, it's so different. Maybe you could, but even there, I would be inclined to say, I don't think we should be doing this research because there's some line We don't know where that line is, where you transition from something that is non-embryo to embryo. And that line is very important to respect. And if you don't even know where the line is biologically, then we should not be tinkering right on the edge of it. It'd be better to do this all in animals, increase our understanding. And then later, it may indeed be possible to generate something that's clearly not a human embryo but is valuable for research purposes. That may be possible, but that's a theoretical possibility, and we're going about it, in my opinion, very much the wrong way. And think about it also from this point of view, Joe, that if you make one of these embryo models and then you try to publish some study about development of humans, one of the critiques that other scientists may throw at you would be, well, you used an embryo model. You didn't use a real embryo, right? So then they're going to go back and say, all right, well, we've got to improve the embryo model uh, yeah, so yeah, it's yeah. exactly like a real embryo. But then it's not an embryo model anymore, and you're back in the thicket right. of the ethical objections. So you can see the problems here. They're really multiple problems. They're legion. Right. Oh, boy. So my head is spinning here. I, I, I'm going to imagine listeners' minds are spinning as well. But kind of as we as – we, bring this interview to a close. Uh, Father Tad, all of the things that that you've been talking about today, how should the person listening to your words, uh, or, or what should they take away from it? Uh, you know, How should good Catholics or, or those of goodwill, how should they approach these issues? Well, I think that it's important for Catholics to make an effort to become familiar with something that I I recognize and you recognize, it's not naturally familiar to us. As you're saying, your head is spinning, and that's totally fair. And I think you're right, some of the listeners may have the same reaction. It's not something we're used to dealing with, but the reality is that we're moving towards a brave new world. And if we can start from that kind of acknowledgement, then we'll say, all right, this is important. It's important enough for me to spend some time and to try to get a little more familiar with what is human cloning, what is in vitro fertilization, 
what is a synthetic embryo and try to develop a little bit of understanding. Now, we can't all be scientists. That's clearly the case. But the other thing I would say is this. The church is a huge blessing to us. And the church does approach these questions usually in an anticipatory way. The church is actually ahead of the curve. So, you know, I've pointed out to people, look, in vitro fertilization, when did that first happen? 78. When did the church first address the ethics of it? It was in the late 1950s that Pius XII already started writing on this. And then, of course, there were other important documents like Donum Vitae, which came out later. And these documents are really, really valuable. And I think Catholics don't appreciate this treasure trove of wisdom that the church has developed and continues to develop. So when the church speaks out on some of these things, we should take the time to look at them. You and I discussed the COVID vaccines. You remember during the whole COVID pandemic, at one point, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith came out with what was more or less a one-page statement on the cell lines. It was brilliant. It was right to the point. It was crisp. It was clear. I'm convinced every Catholic should have read that closely. It's not asking too much to go through one page slowly and absorb it. So we need to be looking for those opportunities. We need to be in touch with the teaching authority of the church. And of course, I'm going to make a little pitch here. Be aware of what the National Catholic Bioethics Center is doing. We're doing some really exciting stuff. We have outstanding ethicists on our staff. And we do ourselves often issue statements, clarifications, other guidance that will be very, very valuable to listeners. So try to keep one's finger on the pulse there as a practicing Catholic. And already, if you can do just you know what I've said here, you'll already be way, way ahead of most Catholics, and you'll be able to contribute in a meaningful way to raising the level of the discourse, to pushing back against unethical practices. And maybe one final word here, for those who are actually doing research, who are scientists or physicians or clinicians, I think the bar is a little higher for you. You really do have you know, more of an obligation and a duty to try to inform yourself correctly and to be able to then represent our Lord Jesus Christ in the setting where you are, whether it's a research setting, whether it's a clinical setting. And you will be light in that setting. So important that you, you know, take these steps of forming yourself well. So that's kind of the pitch. And what I, I hope are some words of wisdom, perhaps for our listeners, for your listeners. Excellent. Father Tad Poholchik, thank you for joining me today on Bioethics on Air. Well, thank you so much, Joe. Really a pleasure to do it. I'm glad we had the time and the leisure to go a little deeper here. Thanks so much. And we'll have to do it again in less than three years. That would be awesome. (laughs) (laughs) For more information on the topics discussed today and other bioethical issues, please visit our website, ncbcenter.org, where you can subscribe to our newsletter, as well as our publications, Ethics and Medics, and the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly. The views expressed on Bioethics on Air are not necessarily those of the National Catholic Bioethics Center. If you have comments or questions about this or any of our podcasts, please contact me, your host, Joe Zalot, at J-Z-A-L-O-T 
at ncbcenter.org. Archived editions of the podcasts are available on our website. Please hover on the blogs and podcast button on the main page and then click Bioethics on Air. Finally, if you enjoy our podcasts, please subscribe to them. And if you would like to support them, as well as the mission and ongoing work of the NCBC, go to our website, again, ncbcenter.org, and click on the red Donate button. Thank you for listening, and may God's peace be with you.